I don't know what your frame of reference is for the book of Exodus. I don't know, I don't know what you think of when you think of the story of Exodus. I, in, in a lot of ways, whenever I think about anything biblical, I think of Charlton Heston. He's always, you're surprised at this? Have you not seen Saturday matinee biblical epics? I'm pretty sure he's Moses, right? Isn't he Charlton Heston? I'm looking around for a nod. Boydy knows he's Charlton Heston. Yeah, so that's my, that's my frame of reference. And there's also, there was also the, uh, the recent, um, not that recent, about 15 years ago, the, the Disney thing. <laughs> it's not recent, is it? It's 15 years ago. It's a lifetime ago. Recent to me. Yeah, there was that, there was that epic. So a lot, I've been thinking a lot, of, a lot of my frame of reference has come from, has come from these sorts of things. Um, but there's some really, you know, and I've, and I've kind of obser- observed it a little bit in that sort of Sunday school class sort of way. So now you de- deal with the story of Moses. You know, this, this God's people escape. It's miraculous. It's a lovely story. It's a really nice story. Praise God, and we'll park it. Don't think too much about whether the Red Sea really parted, all those sorts of things. But this story has got so much to tell us. It's so well quoted in the New Testament. It's such a pivotal story. It's such a significant story. It's such a big picture that God gives us. So a um, couple of points I want you to sort of have uh, for the whole series, and I guess Paul will come in the next couple of weeks and he'll sort of add to these, so this is not, this is not all the points we're going to make, but it's things to have in the back of your mind. So first one is, it's obviously a story about people being saved. God takes the people, the vulnerable people in Egypt, and he saves the vulnerable people fantastically. So we are, we are a saved people in that sense. We are a people who are being saved. Second one is that it's not just that we've been saved you know, that's the story we've been saved, but it's also, and this stuff comes together, I think, when, when we're saved as Christians, it's about being saved and making God known. That's what, the, that's what the story is about. These people are, these people are vulnerable and they escape by the skin of the teeth, but that's not the end of the story. God is working massively to not just demonstrate that these people are saved, but that it's his, excuse me, it's his story. It's him that's doing the saving. So you've got an old, frail, unconfident guy, Moses, who's the guy who's going to save the people. And does that point to the greatness of Moses? And you've got a bunch of people who are completely desperate, completely at the end of themselves. You know, this, this story feels like it's come to an end. This story brings about the glory of God. Moses He's a stuttering fellow, can't even bring himself together, can't even, doesn't even really want to, you know, he kills a guy at the start, doesn't really want to face up to the job, stutters his way through it. This is about the glory of God and being saved, our stories. We think, we think sometimes of our salvation, we go, right, I'm saved and I'm into heaven. Oh, thank goodness for that. I've got my ticket. That's not the end of the story of salvation. The book of Exodus will teach us that. It's about how we make God known through our stories, how we bring God's glory. And often... And it's not the stuff we want, but often it's in our time of weakness. That's where this story is going to start. The people are vulnerable and exposed, and it looks like they are finished, and yet God's glory will be displayed in an incredible way. So the story of our salvation, the story of being saved, is one of making God known as well. So there's this verse that will come about as we go through the story. You will be my people, that you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Paul will fire this one off to us a couple of times, that you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This story of salvation is that people will know who God is. So it's a story about being saved, and it's a story about being saved and making God known, but it's also a story about being saved and being shaped. 
these, these things come together. When if, I don't know if you're a Christian or not or what your salvation story is, but these, these things are not separate things. And we really see this really clear in, clearly in this story. These people are saved and they, they find their way to their salvation. But as they go, as kind of a necessity of their being saved, they have to change. They go through this journey out of Egypt, this journey where they're kind of full of pride and they've got all these problems, and they have to be changed. Something's got to change in them. So we are saved and we are changed, and in this salvation process, I think this stuff comes together. If you're, if you're somebody who would say, I think I've become a Christian, but there is no, there's no change at all, then I don't know, maybe you have to look at that again. I think the story of Exodus would really challenge that perspective. We're saved and we're changed, and they come together, those things. And saved as well to do something. So those, I want those things, just those are starters for 10, things to sort of run through your mind. And in the, the sermon tonight, I've got... Two points, two, two big points, two sort of coat hangers for you to hang all the thoughts on. And the first one, this one is this, even though it may seem not to be the case, God is still there working out his good plan. You got that? Even though it may seem not to be the case, God is still there working out his good plan. And I don't know about you, but when I watch the news or when I pop into the tap and barrel or whatever else, it, sometimes it doesn't feel like God's there. This story is going to really ground us and remind us that God is still there, and he's not only still there, he's not only still there, but he is working out his good plan, and we need to hang on to that, and we will, as church and as God's people. Second point, what do we do when he feels like he's not there? We're going to, we're going to sort of work through some of these things, so these are some of the things that we'll cover as we go through. What do we do when, even though hopefully through this text we'll explain why he is still there, it still feels like he's not. What do we do? What do we hang on to? in those moments. Okay, so that's the, those are the court hangers. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going to go. Doesn't it feel sometimes in life that there's, there's the big, excuse me, there's the big plans that we make in our life. Often life's like this, I think. We have these big plans and these big hopes and these big ambitions, and then we reach a certain point in life, and there's just, there's a reality of what our hopes were, and it's just a bit of flatness. Don't know if you have a, if, if, you, if you're familiar with that, you know, the, the hopes and dreams and ambitions of youth I feel a bit sad saying some of this because I'm a married man and I should be on top of the world and I've got three lovely children and all the rest of it. But it's true, isn't it? When you grow up, you've got all these dreams and all these plans and all this life that you see before you. And my wife could probably stress it with more significance than me. You have, you have all these plans and these things that you hope to aspire to and then you get to 38, nearly 39, and you're like, this is, this is it. This is my life. I thought I would travel and see the world. I thought I would have this and I thought I would do that and I live in Cass and... I, <laughs> And I get fed up at everything, and I'm a bit miserable a lot of the time. And the, like the reality of it can be like a, can be hard to face, can't it? There's the hopes and dreams, and there's the reality. I play for Christchurch football team. We're an amazing football team. We've turned the corner in a, in a don't laugh. We've turned the corner in a big way. It's it's amazing. Um, but the rhetoric is really funny about the team. I, I really love this. The football the football chat, the way that guy guys talk about the team is it's lovely. But it's really funny. It's like we talk about formations. We get really serious about formations. Three, four, two. Do you think three, four, two? We're all we're all like this. Then we talk about track suits with initials. That's come up. We've talked about this. We've talked about the dream that is playing on 4G. Martin at the back. We're hoping to get a 4G pitch. We've got all these amazing dreams and hopes and aspirations. And then the reality on a Saturday morning. It's, I've not. I've played in one game where it's been sunny. Every game's been tipping it down with rain. The kit's kind of been washed to death, so it's shrunk and it's like ill-fitting. We've never got pegs for nets. 
we've never got enough footballs, and it's always the case that we've got 10 guys and Dave Mate is going to pop along. Has Dave Mate played before? No, Dave Mate's not played before, but he's going to join us and jump in with us. And it's like, it's the hopes and dreams and then the reality of life. And in this story we're going to look at today, that is exactly the story. There is this, children of Israel have been on this journey, and we'll trace a little bit of it through, through second half of Genesis up to the start of Exodus. They've been on this journey of, like, hope, like massive bars as high as you like, hope, and at the start of Exodus, they are facing the flat reality. So I'm going to quote a bit of a Genesis text for us just now, just to trace the story back. Uh, Genesis 13, and there's a, there's, a bunch, there's a bunch of promises, so maybe you'll know this, maybe you don't know this, there's a bunch of promises halfway through Genesis that God, God makes to Abraham and then reiterates to Isaac and the rest of the generations, you know, significant promises, and they're all like awesome, awesome promises. So the first one. Genesis chapter 13, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into, listen to this for a promise, to one guy, I will make you into a great nation. I could do with that. I could do with somebody telling me that's going to happen to me. That would send your ego through the roof, wouldn't it? I'm going to make you, this old guy, into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name Great. This is what he's telling Abram. You're going to be a great nation, and your name's going to be awesome. That's what he's telling him. That's a hit, isn't it? I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you, not only will you be awesome, but everyone you meet will be blessed. Look at that. Your name will be great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. It's all good. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Awesome. Just this is a really good story, and your ancestors are gonna, they're gonna be blessed. It's just, it's all good. But what do we know about Abram? Have a think in the back of your mind. He gets promised again in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Elysia of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, hang on to this verse, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. He said to them, so shall your offspring be. These are the promises that Abram gets. Now, I've, I think I've overthought this, but um, I really like the idea that Abraham comes back to his wife, Sarah, and this is like the best come online I think you could ever go for in the whole world. He says, God's told me I'm going to have a child, you know, how about it? You know what I mean? It's just, it's an amazing promise, isn't it, that God's, that God's brought before him. You're going to be blessed, your, your ancestors, and he hasn't got any. He hasn't got any at all, and he's got no hope of getting any, but your family, and this is, I think it's still a big deal to us now, but in these times, this is the big deal. Your family and your legacy, it's the big deal, and God says, you're going to be blessed more than you can ever imagine. Now, I'm going to, I need to footnote this by saying, if you read on in 15, God, God underscores it by saying, and you're going to have some hard times along the way. You're going to be in a country that's not your own for a whack of time, and it's going to be difficult, but I am going to bless you in an incredible way. So this is, this is the backstory that goes through all the houses of, of Israel and all God's people at this time. We're going to be a great nation. And the family gets bigger and bigger, and this story continues. We're going to be a great nation. We're going to be blessed. 
God's going to give us this land. It's going to be an amazing story. And we know, I think we know how this story goes, don't we? Joseph, we get the story of Joseph, the guy with the fancy coat. And he has a couple of dreams that his brothers don't really like. And they kick him out and he ends up in Egypt. And then the food runs out in Israel, so they end up in Egypt. And for a while... Joseph's prime minister, and you, you can kind of hold on to these promises. You think, well, maybe these promises are still going to come good. Maybe that's still going to work out for me. But in the end, time passes, and this is where we're going to pick up the story. Time passes, time moves on, and these people end up, and I want to try and labor this. I want to try and make this as sharp as I can. These people end up as slaves. They've come in a legitimate sense under the care of Joseph with God's guidance and God's presence, but the reality the reality of the working out of the hopes and dreams of where they thought they were going to go, the reality of that is just, it's this flat oppression. They're, they're, they're all brickies. They're all grafting really hard. They are slaves. They've been beaten up. They're sent out into the desert to build cities. I don't know if you've been following the story of the Windrush generation recently. Have you followed any of that story? Um, the, the, the people that the British government sent for from Jamaica you know, after the, after the empire sort of came together at the end of the Second World War, we, you know, we needed as much help as we could get. So we sent for, uh, for the, some Jamaicans to come in and, and help us out, you know, come and work, come and help us out. And they all came over joyfully. And there's a, if you've seen any of the newsreels, there's a, they're, they're there singing songs and they're happy to be there. Time skips on a couple of generations. Same, same as the story that we've been looking at in Genesis, Exodus. I preached on Genesis this morning, forgive me. The, the same sort of idea. And we're in a new climate, there's new authorities, there's new circumstances, we're really concerned about things like Brexit, independence and those sorts of things, and we have forgotten the case of these people, horrifically, to our shame, I think, but we've forgotten their case. And these people exist now, and I'm, I'm sure it will be resolved, I hope it will be resolved, but they exist kind of cut off from the reason that they were here in the first place. And God's people in Israel, after, I mean, they're, they're not just cut off like that and it will be resolved, hopefully, they're cut off in a way that just completely marginalizes them. They're slaves. They're completely forgotten. And all, all of the promises and the hopes and the dreams just seem completely shattered and crushed. Listen to what the text says and try and imagine their faith crisis that's going on at the moment. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses, store cities for Pharaoh. So this new authority comes in, just cuts them off dead. And as a community, they are completely maligned completely abused, and they're facing the reality of these promises going really, really flat. And here's the question I want you to, to sort of consider at the moment. How do you keep believing in a good, all-powerful God, a good, all-powerful God with a plan, when everything you see in the world around you makes you feel different? We know, I think we know something of their circumstance. This, and I I don't know if you saw me scribbling some lines down as we were singing one of those songs. We hold on to these hopes and these promises, these aspects of our faith that God is all-powerful, God is 
sovereign, God is in control, and there is a plan that's working out, and, and we are part of that plan, and we hold on to all this, and then we face the reality of not even being able to front up to our work colleagues and go, yeah, I believe this. And we, I'm singing a song there, and I believe it with all my heart, and I'm singing it, your name is greater, your name is unfailing, your word is unfailing, all my hope is in you, and I'm singing it, and I, and I mean it. And I hang, on every, I hang on these words, and they are a true reality for me. And yet, and yet when I go into, the, into the, like the world, when I have to front up to people, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? The, new, the, 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 the authorities in the world kind of undermine our position as Christians. And it's a tricky thing to marry up, and it's a challenge for us as Christians. And in this text, I think hopefully one of the things that we can pull out is there, are, there, are a re, there is a reminder for us you know this story is really tricky but there is a reminder for us that God is still there and he's still working out his good plan and I think there's, there's two there's two clues for us in the text two two things for us to to to, to hope in and these, these two these two clues are, are kind of we see him in the text and they so I, I feel like we also see him in the wider realities of life the first one is that despite new authority our connection with the Creator remains. Despite new authority, our connection to the Creator remains. This is what it says in the text. Now Joseph and all his brothers died, and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was full of them. And I know this because I've been preaching on it this morning. At the start of Genesis, you read through the start of Genesis, and and with, with all these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are, there are words and phrases and people's names that come up. And when they come up, like we'll just read straight by them. So this is just a list. You're going to just read straight by it. You think, this is nothing. I'm waiting to get to the story of Moses and the bulrushes because that's where it starts, right? You, read, you, just, you just flick straight through this stuff. But all of this stuff is massively significant, and it gives us a real context to look at the story, story through. This is a text to remind the reader that this oppressed group is still connected with his creator. So the story of Genesis is the same sort of language. The people were fruitful and multiplied greatly, and they became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. If you read the creation account, you'll realize when God made the world, he said, go into the world, multiply, and fill it. And we get that same. So if you, read, if you, if you were to take the book of the Bible and you read, because you've got time on your hands, you read straight through Genesis and straight through Exodus, you'd, you'd maybe begin to see some of this stuff. And it's a reminder for the reader that even in this great oppression, God is still working out his plan. And there is still a connection for this abused people with the Creator. And I think we see that in real life. In fact, it's one of the big encouragers for me as a Christian that we see that working out in real life, despite the fact that we live in a world so the the Israelites were oppressed for 400 years. There's a, there's a sense in which, since the days of the Enlightenment, great though they were, uh, the, the voice of faith has had that kind of oppression over it, that strong kind of uh, the, the sense in which science has completely disproved the need for faith or religion or anything like that. And, and Christianity sort of lived under that. And do you know what the amazing thing is? Despite we've had this strong voice, this kind of saturated authoritative opinion that, that kind of forgets God, despite all that, I can still walk down the street. And, and all of my neighbors, and none of them are Christians, and I'll have a spiritual conversation with all of them. This, the, 
despite that they've had 200 years, they've had generation after generation of people telling them there's, there's, there's nothing in Christianity, and they would say that they're not Christians, and yet, in times of great need, because they know I'm kind of a pastor guy, they'll have a spiritual chat with me. In times of desperation, you know, like when the plane's going down or when you get ill or whatever else it is, people still pray. A connection with the Creator remains. It doesn't go away. 200 years of enlightenment, and people still pray. People still look each other in the eye, and we think, yes, some, there is something. We still search for meaning. We still search for something in this world. A connection with the Creator remains. That's the first clue, I think, in the text. The second one, despite new authority, his people continue to be as many as the stars in the sky. So it's what it says in the text, then the names of the sons of Israel who, were in, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, and all the, and all the rest of them, 17 in all. This, this, is not just a, this is not just a pointless list that we're getting here. This is a reminder to the reader that this bunch of people that are oppressed, that it looks like their, their story's done, you know, they're slaves, it looks like they're finished, they're still connected with the promises that have gone before, that this people will be as many as the stars in the sky. I love the fact, and maybe I shouldn't, but I love the fact that under huge oppression, the church sort of maligned, sort of ridiculed for being, for being useless and pointless and, and, and having no, you know, no place in the modern world, Despite, despite this oppression, despite new authority coming into the world, God's church still grows. Still grows. The promises remain just the same. You, 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 look, you look over the, over the seas and the church in South Korea is just booming. It's just nuts. You look under massive oppression. Do you know where the church is growing fastest in the world? Last time I looked, under huge oppression in Iran, the church grows. And under this massive oppression, the promises of God that he promised to Abraham that your children will outnumber the stars of the skies, you know, a number so vast and so big you could ever imagine. I'm sure Abraham never thought, could even conceive of the fact that the church would grow all over the world in ways that he could never understand. And the text gives us two little clues. So we've got the clues, but life still sucks, right? Life's still really tricky. It still feels a lot of the time, and you might not want to nod your head at this bit in church, but it still feels like a lot of the time in the world that we live in that God's not there. So what do we do? I've got three things for us to do to try to focus our attention on and sort of remind ourselves about when we feel like God's not there. First one is to trust God for the big picture of life. Trust God for the big picture of life. Remember, he knows best. Sort of look into the story of Exodus, see the oppression of the people, and remember how this thing works out. It's not what it felt like for the people at the time, but we have to trust in a God who has been there for eternity. That's one of the things that we believe. And that can be a difficult thing to do sometimes, to trust the expert. I was, last year, me and the wife and the kids were climbing up uh, in the Lake District, a hill called Causey Pike. Um, it was our biggest, it was our biggest effort yet at a big mountain for the for the five of us to get up to the top of Causey Pike. And we set off full of enthusiasm, as is often the way, and that degenerates uh, very quickly. And and then the weather came in, and uh, I, I I think we fell to pieces as a team. We got very scared very quickly. We were up at the top, 
and I had I just bought a Wainwright book. I don't know if that's very target for you lot, but Wainwright is this you know this a walker who knows his way around the, the lakes more more better than anybody else. And I, and I was into this book, and I thought this is great. And we're panicking, and I've got my Wainwright book, but we we were hopeless. We were abs- you know we were absolutely hopeless and panicking like mad. And then all of a sudden, this mystical figure appeared. <laughs> at the top of this mountain. It was, a beautiful, it was a beautiful thing. There was a guy just reclined. It was terrible weather, and he was kind of reclined. I'm pretty sure he had a pipe. I think he had a pipe, and he was just, it was like serenely calm. And I, I rushed over to him with my Wainwright book, kind of meeting an, a fellow walker, even though it's the first time I'd ever been up this mountain, or, or many mountains, really. And, and I sort of said to him, I'm a bit panicked, but I've got an idea. If I go along from here, and I go down there, da 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 and all the rest of it, and I give him my idea, for how I, would, how I would save the day. And he, he looked back at me, like in a very, it was serene the whole time. And it, 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 felt, it felt a little bit like he lived, he'd, he'd lived there. Do you know what I mean? I, I met this guy and I thought, he feels like he's been here forever. He just talked about it like it was, like it was so familiar. He said, take, take, take a second, stop panicking, young man. Just, you know, breathe. You and your family are going to be fine. If you, if you carry on down that path, I said, I've been down that path. There's a, there's a ravine. We're going to die if we go down that path. He said, if you go down that path, Wait, wait till, um, till the bricks turn to rubble or whatever else, and then you'll see a bit, you'll see a patch of heather, and then, and then if you go down there, and, if you, then you, and you'll make your way around to the left, and then you'll be down at the car park where I'm pretty sure you've parked. He talked about me like he knew, like he knew me in my naivety. It was, it was ridiculous. And I, was, I wanted to kind of argue back with him. I was like, I've got my Wainwright book, I'm pretty sure, and I'm, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy. You know, it's his first time up here, but I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy. And I reached this point where I, I was like, this guy looks like he's been here forever. This guy knows this place like the back of, the, back of his hand. I've just got to bow to him. He just, I've just got to trust him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk down a path that I think's insane, that I think my kids are going to fall off the side of, but this guy looks like he's been here forever. I've got to go with what he's saying. Sometimes our relationship with God is, is like that. God has been here for Forever. Forever. He flung the stars into space. He knows us inside out. He knows humanity inside out. And we get to moments of our life where we, where we want to say to him, I'm pretty sure you should be like this, God. I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be feeling so lousy right now. I'm pretty sure this shouldn't be going on in the world right now. And I guess maybe we're saying, I'm pretty sure I know better than you. And I think one of the lessons we've really got to learn, we've got to trust God for the big picture. That's the first thing we've got to do. Second thing we've got to do is try and learn through it when God's not there. Sometimes, I don't know if, if you get this, but sometimes I've had this, you know, I guess in different points of my life, looking back, you get to that point in your life where things are really rubbish, feels like God's not there, and you assume that he's not there. You assume actually that it's not working out. It's, it's difficult, and so you go, well, this isn't the Christian path because life's difficult. You just go like that. You go, well, I've lost my job, or my health's not good, or whatever's going on, and you just go, well, God's not there now. And kind of nothing in the Bible would lead you to think like that. So many times the story of God's people is life's tough and he's still there. And actually, actually it's tough because God, God wants to say something really loud. There's that, that well-worn quote by C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts at us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think just to challenge ourselves with that fact that the, sort of the Christian life is not just a ticket to prosperity. It's not, it's not like hashtag blessed. It's not like everything's going to be amazing for me. Actually, the Christian life can be pretty tough 
a lot of the time, and that is still massively pointing towards a holy God. So trust God in the highs and lows of life. Learn through it. Don't dismiss it. And the third one, yeah, maybe the most important one, is to remember God keeps his promises. Remember God's going to keep his promises. It's one of the things that we learn, I think a defense mechanism perhaps really quickly in life, is to hold promises loosely. You learn that lesson, I don't know, about seven or eight, I reckon you learn that lesson as a kid. People make promises to you in your life and you go, you never bought me that ice cream, Dad. I'm going gonna, gonna, to got my eye on you, so my kids will learn this off me already. And they hold the promises a bit loosely. And what happens, you know, as a story of our humanity is that we just, we learn to hold promises loosely. And it sort of dictates how we live life. We meet somebody, they make a promise, and we go, oh, you didn't keep that. And we, it, we, it, 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 in, it, what's the right word? It directs the, the flow of our life. We, we've, we, we learn to not trust people. One of, the, one of the questions that the Bible poses for us is, what would it mean to know some, someone completely trustworthy whose promises you could depend on? What would that mean? What would that change in the story? If you could meet somebody, and one of the things we think about is we look around, much as we love all of each other and our friends and our relatives and our partners and everything else, they're going to break the promises. And the Bible asks us a question. I think it asks us it particularly in Exodus. What would it mean to know someone completely trustworthy? And the answer to this story in the book of Exodus is it would mean everything. It would mean everything. A people who have spent 400 years as slaves laying brick will walk out of the most powerful empire in the world. Why, why are they going to be able to walk out on the most powerful empire in the world? Have they got a, a strategy? Have they got a new plan? No, nothing like that. The reason they can walk out on the most powerful empire in the world is because a holy God will honor his promises. We've got to trust that God keeps his promise. And I'm going to leave you with one as we go, one promise that Jesus made. And I want you to try and imagine, if, if this is true and if I can hold on to this, what would this change? What should this change for me? Jesus said, if I leave you, I will come back so that you can be with me where I am. Even in the worst of times, even in the very worst of times, in the pits, if your hope is in that, then it changes everything.